Well, good morning. Okay, we're going to do three things a little different here that I'm going to normally don't make announcements right before the uh, sermon. First of all, I noticed, Charles, it looks like you're wearing a new shirt. Is that right? Not new, but from another country maybe, right? Welcome home. It's good to have you back from Africa. Charles has been in Uganda with his team for the last couple weeks, and uh, we look forward to hearing more about that trip but, uh, and what God did there, but it's good to have you back. Uh, secondly, uh, just a logistical thing, uh, parents, if you'd help us. Um, you notice we just did all the sighting, or we had all that done. We had a storm and insurance took care of a lot of things. We were praising God for how he provided for our church in that way. Um, they cleaned up afterwards. They picked up a lot of the nails. However, uh, we met up with them this week, and I think Larry said that they're going to come back, and they're going to roll over that with a large magnet uh, one or two more times. And so there's still some nails here and there. Uh, they've got most everything. But I'm just going to ask that for this week, if you'd keep your kids with you uh, and not be running around the, right outside the church building. And then obviously the, the new playground equipment uh, still has work to be done. So uh, we're, we're keeping everybody off that. So if you'd help us with that, uh, that, would be, that would be wonderful. Uh, finally, uh, we're going to open in prayer here before we go to God's word. But we're going to do that a little differently. Um, and I ask you to turn to the person or a couple of people right next to you. I want to ask, uh, ask them one thing that you can be praying for this week. And, uh, and then pray together, and let's pray that God would give us ears to hear his word today. So turn to one another, let's pray as congregation together. Take about another 30 seconds, pray with one another. Father, we, uh, we are so grateful to be together. We're so grateful to be a part of this thing called the church. This group of people that has existed for 2,000 years, uh, over 2,000 years now. And, and Father, we, we, just, we give you praise for um, being a part of this worldwide body. We, um, we know that you are good. We know that you are working all things out for your glory and for our good. As we come to together today in part of our worship, we, we give our attention to what your word says. And, and so I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you would give us a mind that would understand and hearts that would be softened towards what you teach us today. Um, these next few moments and these, this time that we, we come to your word, I know that you'll convict us, 
the Spirit will teach us, the Spirit, Spirit will illuminate um, the meaning of the text, as well as the ways it applies to our lives. And so please help each one of us to be attentive to that, help us to pay attention, and uh, might we walk in obedience as we are filled with your Spirit. It's in his name we pray and ask this. Amen. Well, Washu was born in 1965 in West Africa, where she was captured by the Air Force and brought back to the United States. Initially for research use in the space program, in 1966 she left the program and began living in Washu County, Nevada with two, chimpan two, two scientists, they're not chimpanzees, but they were scientists, two scientists named Alan and Beatrix Gardner. Uh, Washu obviously was a chimpanzee, and uh, previ previous efforts had been taken to teach chimpanzees spoken language, and they had all failed. But the gardeners believed that there was a better chance using sign language. And so Washu learned American Sign Language starting that year, and her fame quickly spread all over. Uh, the gardeners tried to make Washu's environment as similar as possible to what a human infant with, with deaf parents would experience. Researchers communicated uh, with Washu by sign language, minimizing the use of spoken words for everybody that was around her. The gardener said that, for example, when Washu entered the bathroom, uh, she made the sign for toothbrush when she saw one. Uh, Washu only used this, uh, um, also used the sign for, for more in many different situations. And then at one point, she used the sign for flower to express smell. Uh, then after additional training, Washu was eventually able to differentiate between smell and flower. At one time, uh, Paul Harvey recounted, he said, since 1966, the, this chimpanzee has learned 140 signs in standard American Sign Language. After all this learning and more learning, the project directors decided that Washu was prepared now to conceptualize. In lay language, instead of imitating some human words, the chimp was ready to express thoughts of her own. Now understand that Washu is a pampered animal in a university laboratory under special circumstances. She's well-fed, she's physically comfortable, she's safe from harm, she had security, and yet when she was able to put words together in her own little way into a rough phrase, these were her first three. Let me out. You know, we, we all desire some level of security. For Washu, security was outside of a cage. Uh, for us, uh, we discover security in relationships. We have roof over our heads. Uh, it means remaining in good health, maybe. Perhaps a well-funded retirement account for some of us. In the book of Ruth, uh, we have discovered the story of a destitute widow who had lost everything. All of her security was gone husband, her sons, almost every resource that she needed to provide for herself had vanished. And all this took place in the context of a famine in Israel. Now we noted at the beginning of our story that there were two dilemmas. The first dilemma, would God provide bread for his people? And number two, and early in chapter one, we discovered that, that the Lord had given bread to his people. But the second thing was that the question was, would God provide for a poor widow who had been left without her providers and was living in a foreign land? Did God still see her? And as the stories unfolded, God put two people into her life, we found out. 
God brought her relief using her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and then an older farmer who happened to be a close family member, and his name was Boaz. And through Boaz's generosity and through Ruth's unceasing, diligent labor, God provided for these two widows in abundance, at least for a season. Last week we saw two Hebrew words, and, and I suggested to you that these are two Hebrew words that they're, they're worthy for you to learn. Uh, one of those was the word chen. All right, let's just review that. Everybody say it with me. Remember to get the, the, the guttural in there. It's not just a regular H, but chen. Ready? Chen. Good, good. And chen means grace, favor. Uh, we saw that God's chen remains at the heart of his providence, his, his control over, over all things. We saw that God's favor, it often comes through the favor of others, and so we saw how the Lord used Ruth to provide for Naomi and her immediate needs. We saw how Boaz, who showed favor to these two women, was also God's instrument of chen, his grace. But then we also saw that God's chen, his favor, benefits those around us. And this is really important. We can't forget that. Or else we start to get this idea that as I receive God's grace, it's all about me. And my relationship with God is just what I get out of him what I can ask for him, what he does for me. And, and, and that's not the case. We saw how Ruth received this generous portion from Boaz, but, but she didn't keep that benefit just to herself. She passed that kindness on, and she saw to it that Naomi also received the benefits of the grace that God had given to her through Boaz. And so we've seen in Ruth, the book of Ruth, that God in his providence cares for us. But the book of Ruth teaches us that, that one of the ways that he demonstrates his divine care is through our second word, chesed, all right? So we got chen, uh, kind of like a hen, but, but with a, you know, a ump to it, and then uh, chesed, so chesed. All right, that was really weak, all right? Chesed, good, good. You guys are getting that, that hey in there, too. Um, God gives us his chen through the chesed. Of, of other people. And, and this loving kindness, this, this loyal love, is the unconditional giving of oneself without reservation or the thought of getting something in return. One person from our church asked me, okay, so God provided for Naomi, and, and he used Ruth to bring that provision, but, but what about Ruth? What, what about Ruth? I mean, the, the book is called Ruth, right? Doesn't, doesn't she, you know, get some of this benefit as well? And I'm really glad that that question was asked because, um, uh, you know, here's this, this, uh, this woman who's a, a foreigner and, uh, you know, doesn't God provide for this younger widow who was a, a Gentile, uh, a woman living in a foreign land that was not her own? I'm glad that question was asked because that question reflects the same concern that was at the heart of Naomi that we're going to discover in this chapter. Security. Rest. God had given bread to his people, and he had provided for the house of this destitute widow. But in chapter 3, we discover that a couple months have gone by. We, we started the story with barley harvest, and, and, and now we're at the end of, of the wheat harvest. And, and so a couple months have gone by at least, and it's the time of threshing out the, gla the grain. This is, this is Thanksgiving. This is the end of the season. It's the end of the, both harvests. And we read in verse 1, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Should I not seek rest for you, 
that it may be well with you? And, and what we have here is another display of chesed, which we've been seeing throughout the book of Ruth. In chapter 1, you, you remember Naomi's prayer? She, she prayed for Ruth back in chapter 1 and for her other daughter, um, or- Orpah, who stayed in the land of Moab. And she specifically prayed, may, may Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you may find rest, that is security, each of you in the house of her husband. And it's interesting, as we've seen, each one of these prayers that are unfold throughout the book of Ruth, every single one of these prayers is going to be answered, but in a way that the person who's praying it doesn't expect. And God uses that person who prays it to actually be the catalyst for bringing that the answer to that prayer uh, to fruition. Naomi prayed that her daughter, for her daughters-in-laws, but what's but beautiful here is that at the beginning of chapter 3, God is going to bring that prayer to realization, but it's going to begin with a sacrificial act of chesed on the part of Naomi. And we need to remember that though God has provided for Naomi through the barley harvest, he's provided for Naomi and Ruth through the wheat harvest, uh, that harvest is ended. And, and the opportunity for, for Ruth to glean in the fields has also ended with the harvest. And so likely they're, they're probably going to be living off of the proceeds for the next year because of how Boaz had pride, provided for them. But, but when Ruth could no longer go back into the fields, um, she's no longer to be able to go out and seek favor in that way. And without Ruth, Naomi would have no source of income or provision for herself. And yet, Naomi's act of loving kindness that we're going to see first seeks out the well-being of Ruth. Observe with me the, the plan that Naomi puts into action. You see, realizing that, that after her own death, uh, her, her daughter, Ruth, she also is going to be left as a widow in a foreign land. She, she also is going to be without a provider, and eventually, Ruth is going to be the one who's left destitute, just like Naomi was. Does that make sense? And, and so worse than that, not only is Ruth going to be a widow in a, a land that doesn't treat widows well, usually, but she's going to be a foreign widow, a foreign woman who, who doesn't belong. Now, now certainly for, for years, people are going to remember the stories of how she left her home and how she took care of her mother-in-law, but, but stories fade, don't they? People forget our kindness. Eventually, Ruth is going to be left to beg on the streets. And so Naomi sees all of this ahead of time, and, <coughs> excuse me, and, and she realizes something has to be done to bring security for this woman, for her daughter-in-law. Naomi noted to Ruth that Boaz, their relative, was threshing barley, uh, threshing wheat. Uh, in other words, th- this is the last day. This is the last day that, that Ruth is going to be out in the field and, and Boaz is going to be nearby. After this evening's celebration in which the men are going to feast, followed by the har- following the hard labor of the harvest season, uh, Ruth will not see Boaz again except for maybe a chance passing on the streets of Bethlehem. If Naomi is going to make arrangements, which is her intention, then the best time to act is right now. And so she institutes a plan. Listen to what she says in verses 3 and 4. She says, wash therefore and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. 
But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Now, now in Naomi is encouraging Ruth uh, to do, what she's encouraging her to do is a carefully laid out plan. This, this is a delicate plan. Uh, Ruth is about to, to put herself out there, and there's great risk in, in what she's doing. One misstep would be a cause of embarrassment. It would be a cause of humiliation for Ruth. And so Naomi made careful calculations so that Ruth is taken care of in this, this situation. And there's a few things I want you to, to see that she does. Number one, Naomi realizes that Boaz is, an older, is older than Ruth. Uh, and in all likelihood, he, he's not going to present himself as a suitor. That's just the practical, cultural aspect of this. Uh, a man of, of honor and a man who, you know, probably he's in his late 40s or even in his 50s. And in that culture, he would have recognized that, that young women in their 20s or maybe early 30s, that they would probably be interested in finding a partner that's nearer to their own age. Boaz though he was a relative and he had the opportunity to redeem Ruth by law, um, is probably not going to make that move. He hasn't yet. He hasn't through those seasons. And um, Naomi probably realizes this. Number two, uh, Naomi realizes that Boaz is a man. And uh, if, if presented with the opportunity to marry a young woman like Ruth, Natural desires, laws of attraction kick in. Naomi understands how men and women were made by God. And so she encourages Ruth to, to present herself at her best. She, she encourages her to get cleaned up, put on fragrance, put on your best cloak. And, and there's nothing wrong with what Naomi asks her to do. There's nothing wrong with looking nice. There's nothing inappropriate about what happened here. Uh, but, but she encourages her, encourages her to look her best so that when Ruth comes to the threshing floor, she doesn't look like she's just come in from the field working all day. R she wants Ruth to be her best and with the resources that they had. And number three, Naomi also knows that Boaz has demonstrated himself. And this is in fundamentally important for what she's encouraging Ruth to do. She knows that Boaz has demonstrated that himself to be a man of character and a man who has shown chen, grace, to their family. She knows that, that he is not going to humiliate Ruth, and, and he is going to seek her best interests, even if he chooses not to marry her. And that's what you need to understand. That's what's happening here. This is a marriage proposal. And that's what this whole passage is about. But within that, there's some cultural things taking place in this passage, which are, are very important for us to recognize. There, there's, there's been a lot said about this passage. I, I've read commentaries that, that just take some things out of context here. There's a lot of critical scholars that, that attack the book of Ruth, and they misrepresent what Naomi and Ruth and Boaz are doing here. Uh, first, uh, the wording of this passage it is filled with, with what we would call double entendre. Uh, there, there's a lot of words, you know, th there's a word earlier in, this pa in Ruth that, that talk, uh, talks about um, um, covering, covering someone with the wings of a cloak. And that phrase can, can mean, you know, like if, if I, it, 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 it can mean something really nice. It, it can mean to, to take care of someone, but it can also mean, and it's used in the Bible this way, um, to go to bed together. Uh, so there's double entendre here of, of the words that are being used throughout this passage. The, the instructions have hints that are provocative 
and the narrator of he uses Hebrew figures of speech that make it very clear that the setting which Naomi is instructing Ruth to put herself into has undertones, clear undertones, that should cause us to, to raise an eyebrow a little bit. Now, I'm, I'm going to keep our conversation PG today, but these undertones, as PG-13 as the, they are in the text, they've caused many who have an active imagination to read the passage differently than what it actually says. And, and so you, you may have heard some stories about Ruth and heard some people talk about Ruth in a way that you go, wow, this is really inappropriate. You know, why, what is going on here? Um, they've caused many with a really active imagination to imagine some things in the passage. Some have said that Ruth was selling herself or that something happened on the threshing floor before a marriage took place and, and that that happened there that night. And, and so let me say before anything else that that is an irresponsible handling of God's word and what God tells us here. The, the writer wants you to understand that this scene is filled with tension. This scene is filled with an innuendo, but it is abundantly clear in the way that God has given us the text and the way the narrator tells it that Boaz and Ruth both left that scene at the end of our chapter just as worthy as the manner in which they entered it. So here's where I believe many people go wrong. Because there, there is innuendo in this passage, and there are things that are suggestions that are being made. But I think where a lot of people go wrong in observing and interpreting the events of that night is that they don't understand the culture of what was happening. Uh, that there's a huge cultural context that, that's very different from yours and mine. Um, when I asked Angie to marry me, uh, this is just off the cuff, I, 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 ice cream, I know. But um, when I asked Angie to, to marry me, there was a process that we went through. I, I went and talked to her father, uh, who was a butcher. And we were in his garage where there were knives and other tools. And uh, we got in the car and we went and bought parts and we came back and he was working on his bike and I'm rambling on now. And uh, so I asked her father and then uh, a couple weeks later, or a week later, I, after her sisters were all whispering, um, I took Angie out to eat and we went on a date and then we went down on a walk uh, by the river and, and, and under the moonlight I asked her to marry me. And then several months later there's a ceremony and then we were married. That's kind of the expectation of what happens in our culture, right? You have this period of engagement. But that's not the culture of Ruth and Boaz. It's really easy to assume that our own culture, that our culture, excuse me, that our own culture and our ideas transfer clearly into ancient Bethlehem in the time of the judges. We have these concepts of dating and proposals and engagement and wedding ceremonies that, that just don't correlate to what's happening here. And even the New Testament, you know Joseph and Mary and the story of Jesus, right? A uh, little bit different culture there. They had what was called a betrothal, a, a time in which they were betrothed to be married, but they were considered married, weren't they? For Joseph to leave Mary when he found out she was pregnant, he had to go through a divorce. E even though the ceremony had not taken place and they had not been together, um, that's different from our culture. But, but that New Testament concept that we know of with Joseph and Mary, even that's different from what took place a thousand years earlier in the context of Ruth and Boaz. I believe that what Ruth is doing this night is, and, and what Naomi has told her to do, Ruth is making a marriage proposal. And by uncovering Boaz's feet, 
which is an innuendo for covering his, not all of his legs, but his legs. Um, what Ruth is doing is she's, and she then lays down by his side, is she's offering herself right there. Now, we go, whoa, that's not right. But, but understand, in that culture, what she was offering was, let's get married right now. In, in that culture, marriage would, would be, it, was, it took place different, differently. And this is important. Ancient marriages didn't always include the ceremony first, like we would expect and practice here in the U.S. of A. Often the couple went, and they got married, and then they came back to the city and said, hey, everyone, guess what? We got married last night. And then there would be a celebration and a party, and, and everybody would go, yes, that's wonderful. And the family in the village would celebrate, and they'd have a dinner, and, and they would celebrate this marriage, and they would be there and support them. Now, I, I, just as a side note, I want to emphasize, I, I am not advocating that we choose the method of, of betrothal and marriage that they did in the days of, of the judges. It's not, there's a lot of things that have happened since then that have improved since the time of judges. But what Ruth was doing was offering to marry Boaz that night. And so the innuendos are there. But, but to say that something inappropriate happened is to completely understand the culture of that day, that, that that's how marriage took place. Usually the man would propose it, but, um, and, and in this situation, it, it happens very quickly. But, but what Naomi had planned was her loving design to accomplish the best for Ruth, even if it entailed a great sacrifice on her own part. And she was sacrificing. She was going to lose her best chance at living a more comfortable life. And that sacrifice, if Boaz accepted Ruth's proposal, would start right then. Loving kindness plans the best for others. But, but also note with me in verses 6 to 15 that loving kindness entails the sacrifice of our own desires. It goes on and says, So she went down to the threshing floor, and she did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the, the heap of grain. <clears throat> and then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. Behold, a woman laying at his feet. I mean, get the, get the surprise. I mean, the, the, God wants you to read this and go, feel what Boaz is going through. Have you ever woken up and been startled by something? I, I woke up in the middle of the night the other night, and I was having weird dreams. And uh, I, you know, I, there was a light shining through my window, and I don't know. I, I, there was all kinds of stuff going through my head. I was startled by nothing. Uh, imagine if somebody, you wake up, and there's actually somebody there. So up to this point, you know, Ruth has followed Naomi's instructions, and she's done so to the T. She looked her best. She went to the threshing floor where the harvest ended. They finished the season with a celebration. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a drunken festival. We're told that his heart was merry, which means he probably had a glass of wine or two or so. Um, they, they, he was relaxed. And so he went over and he, he slept by the heap of grain. And then Ruth came over quietly and she uncovered his feet and she lay down just as Naomi had told her to do. But then Boaz is startled, like most of us would be. He eventually notices that his feet are cold. And he notices that there's a fragrance in the air. That um, there's a woman in the dark. You, you tell when somebody's there, and sure enough, 
And he said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth followed Naomi's exact instructions up to verse 8. But you need to see something. She breaks the instructions, verse 9. She does something a little bit different from what Naomi had told her to do. And verse 9 changes it up. She takes these measures into her own hands, and what she's going to do is accomplish a plan of her own design. You see, in chapter 2, Ruth had called herself Boaz's servant, and, and there she used a word that was a lowly term for herself. Uh, it, it recognized her status. It recognized her, her status as a widow who was a, a, a foreigner who had nothing that was poor, and, and she was dependent on him and his mercy. Here, uh, she uses a more elevated term. I mean, she's making a marriage proposal, so you don't come to somebody and say, I'm, I'm a scummy slave, right? Uh, but she uses a, a term that's more elevated from the term that she uses in chapter 2. Um, however, what, what Naomi intended for Ruth was, um, was something different, not the word that Ruth uses. The word she uses implies a higher status, but what Naomi intended for Ruth was for Ruth to be Boaz's full-fledged free wife, and Ruth doesn't use that term. Ruth is proposing a marriage in which she would not be free, she would not be equal, but she would be Boaz's concubine, a slave wife. And her terminology is clear. Uh, later on, there's many different words that are used when, when we're talking about the marriage. But, but what, what, happen, what Ruth is doing here is she is making an enormous sacrifice. Her own happiness and well-being for Naomi's good. And she does this for a very specific reason. You see, by becoming Boaz's second-class wife, this is going to require Boaz to do a few things. To redeem Ruth as his wife, as an equal. Uh, the, the process would entail him offering Ruth a dowry, and then, and then he would live as her partner, and they would and, and, um, <clears throat> and she would obtain the inheritance of Elimelech, um, through, through Boaz and through their first child. By redeeming Ruth as a slave wife, however, as a concubine, this would require Boaz, although he would receive the same benefits, he would be obligated to purchase Ruth at a price. Now, why is that important? Because if he has to purchase Ruth, who does he buy her from? Naomi. This is not what Naomi told her to do. And so by proposing a marriage where she would be his subordinate, Ruth has once again shown a great act of loving kindness to her mother-in-law, who will now be provided for. Ruth is still looking out for Naomi. She still has Naomi's best interests by providing for her a financial resource in which she would be cared for. And not only had she you see, not only has she, she forsaken her homeland at this point, not only has she gone out into the fields and worked diligently over these few months, but now she has forsaken her own freedom in order to care for somebody else and their immediate needs. Her request to Boaz to spread his wings over her is the same as asking him to spread his cloak over her. A and it was a euphemistic way of saying, marry me. I'm your slave. 
you are my goel, a, a term that meant the, the guardian of the family, uh, a kinsman redeemer. And her request for them to get married right there uh, was a real proposal. And, and again, that, w- that would not be inappropriate in that culture. It wouldn't be immoral. It, it was certainly sudden, but, but this was the order of how marriages often took place in that time. And the text continues in verse 10 and says, And he said, May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. You see how Boaz gets what she's done? He's, uh, he's, he's floored. What you did just now, Ruth, this is a greater kindness than the first that you have, that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for, for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So there's a little bit of a problem, isn't there? Uh, Boaz is their kinsman redeemer. We talked about this last week. Uh, the, the, the go whale, the family uh, defender. Uh, it was the responsibility um, to marry a widow and take care of, if, if your brother died, then the living brother was the goel. And, and it was his responsibility to, to marry the widow of his brother and to provide for her. Um, if there were no brothers, then you could go to the nearest relatives. And, and Boaz is a close relative. But the problem is, is that there's somebody else that's closer. Maybe Boaz is a first cousin two times removed and and there's a first cousin one time removed. And, and so Boaz doesn't have rights to Elimelech's land. He doesn't have rights to Ruth. Um, he would be stealing from somebody else. And so he has to follow the law. And so he not only follows the letter of the law, but he's also going to follow the spirit of the law. Boaz didn't spread his cloak over Ruth. Uh, uh, to use a euphemism that would be used in our culture, it would be the same double entendre as saying they didn't go to bed together. It, it's same, same similar um, wording. He, he understood that there was another member of the family who was closer relative to Naomi's husband. And so being a man of integrity, Boaz, Boaz could not rob someone else of their rights to redeem Ruth and the land that belonged to the widows. Boaz was willing to be the kinsman redeemer, but he, he would also follow the spirit of the law. And, and Boaz, we find, is a man of honor and he's a man of integrity. And yet notice that, that he doesn't just send her home right away. Right? Why, why not? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be right, you know, less inappropriate? You know, you, you need to go home now. Why wouldn't he do that? Well, first of all, remember, this is the land of the judges. This is uh, a time when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And there's a lot of uh, unsavory characters out there. And at night, there's a good reason for her staying there. She was a woman. It's late at night. Um, this would protect her physically, and it would protect her character as well. And so Ruth was willing to sacrifice her freedom for Naomi. Boaz was willing to sacrifice marrying Ruth in order to do what was right for another individual that hasn't even been introduced into our story yet. Loving kindness entails the sacrifice of our own desires. But also notice that loving kindness, chesed, it protects the interests of others. Verse 14 goes on to say that she, so she laid his feet until the morning, 
but arose before one could recognize another. So it's, it's not quite dawn yet. The, the, the light is starting, but um, nobody's going to be able to tell who it was. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. Um, so uh, he protects her reputation a- as well as her safety. But, but he also protects the women from doubting his intentions by sending about 60 pounds of barley home. Imagine that walk. All right, 60 pounds of crushed, threshed barley. This, these aren't just stalks. Um, her, she's taken the cloak, probably the cloak or, or some garment that she had, a- and they used it as a sack and probably put it around her shoulders or on her head. And, and so Na- Ruth carries 60 pounds of barley home to Naomi. Ruth had come with a proposal for marriage. And Boaz showed restraint in order to provide the best situation for both Ruth and Naomi. He redirects the purpose of the evening, but he gives a clear indication of of promise and the prospect of what his plentiful provision will be. Boaz is doing everything that he can to provide for both of these women, and his gift of grain is basically is a down payment of his protection, down payment of his intentions. But notice how our chapter finishes. And I love this last conversation. This is, this is gold. Verse 16 says, When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, 60 pounds. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, uh, we, there's a few, we've, t- we've talked about a few passages in, he, in Ruth that, that Hebrew students have a hard time translating, and this is another one of those. Um, Ruth walks in the door, and, and literally in Hebrew, uh, Naomi says, who are you? Now, does that make sense? It does to you? Do you get it? Yeah. Now, he- Hebrew students like myself, you, you know, read the Hebrew of that, and they go, well, that, you know, we're thinking logically, and, you know, some, some of you ladies got that immediately. Um, she literally s- is asking, well, share the news. What happened? Are you Ruth or are you Mrs. Boaz? Who are you? And, and so the translation that says, how did you fare? It, it's, it's a good paraphrase of, of the intentions of what, what, um, what Naomi's asking. But literally, she says, who are you? Tell me the news. What's going on? Are you married? She knew what her intentions were. She knew what Ruth had gone to do. And Naomi is expecting that she's either come back with a rejection or, or she's married. And so Ruth tells her everything that had happened. She shows her the 60 pounds of barley that he gave to her. And, and Naomi knows that, that Boaz is going to do what's right. Naomi's primary objective in this passage is to take care of Ruth. And she does so sacrificially. Ruth's primary goal is to find someone who is going to take care of Naomi. And she does so sacrificially. Boaz's goal was to have both of them taken care of. And he does so sacrificially. The chapter began with Naomi seeking rest for Ruth, but it ends with no rest for Boaz. 
he is going to persist until Ruth is provided for and Naomi. Well, there's more to unfold, and chapter 4 is the conclusion, which shows that Boaz does things, and, and he's going to do things in a way that you don't expect. You might know the story, but there's a lot of things that Ruth, that Boaz is going to do that, um, well, it's brilliant. We'll look for that next week. Chesed. Loving kindness plans the best for others. Loving kindness entails the sacrifice of our own desires, and chesed protects the interests of others. I offered you a, a challenge last week as, as, we, as we wait to see, see how Boaz is going to provide for Ruth and Naomi and, and how he's going to bring us about. I'm going to give you an extension on your assignment, okay? Uh, I, op- I offered you a challenge, and that challenge was to choose one specific act of chesed for each member of your family. Write it down. Carry it out. And so you get another week. Find one thing. Plan one thing. Do one thing. One act of chesed. Sacrificial love. It can be something small. It can be something big. But carry it out and, and sh- demonstrate that chesed to each member of your family. When I tack one extra thing on there, you ask some prayer requests before the service. I want to encourage you to, to show chesed by praying for one another this week. And then I want you to choose one family at Duadifri that you do not know that well. If you haven't this last week, I'd like to encourage you to, to seek to reach out beyond your immediate circle of friends. Invite someone out for lunch. Maybe have somebody over to your place. Maybe there's something, a, a need that you're aware of something that you're able to do in another person's life that maybe somebody else can't. Or maybe you're just the person that God put in their path. But to start, introduce yourself. Sit down, we got a potluck. Sit down with somebody that you don't know. It needs to be personal. Chesed. It needs to be purposeful. It's loving kindness. It's loyal love. And sometimes it needs to include sacrifice. But that's no less than what our Savior did for us, isn't it? When we come to the New Testament, we discover the ultimate act of chesed. God's loyal love, his loving kindness, his, his loyal, faithful love to us. And how did he show it? He showed it by giving up all the glory of heaven for a time. He humbled himself, he became one of us. A woman changed his diapers for, I don't know, how long did it take him to potty train, do you think? A long time. A couple years, a year. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. How humiliating for the king of the universe. He sacrificed it all and became one of us. He grew up, he demonstrated chesed to the people around him, to his disciples, to his family. And then we killed him. And he allowed himself to be a sacrifice. Is it a meaningless act? Something that meant nothing? A great tragedy? No, he did it because he loved you. He did it out of his loyal love, his faithfulness, his loving kindness. Because we needed salvation. Because a price had to be paid for our sin. And Jesus accomplished that on the cross. His loving kindness, his chesed for you and for me. So that all who, by faith, believe in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross 
might have eternal life. The forgiveness of sins. Adopted as heirs. Baptized into this thing called the church that we get to be a part of. That's a chesed for you. It's a chesed for me. And he asks us to live that out as well. And so how are you going to live out God's chesed in your life intentionally today? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your gift of loyal love that you've demonstrated. You're the God of the universe and you could have just wiped us out. We deserved it. We were rebels. We were at war with you and yet you chose to continue to seek us out. You drew us to yourself. You gave us your son who died in our place, who provided the one thing that we could not. You provided everything that we could not. But ultimately, the salvation that we need comes through your son, Jesus Christ. And this is the greatest gift you've given to us. We thank you. We know that you loved your disciples. You loved us before we first loved you. But now that we've seen your love, now that we've seen your chesed, Father, it's my prayer that as we go out from here that we would learn to, to demonstrate that same loving kindness to others for your glory.